0: We're going to start a sermon this morning, go for several weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7 for the next several weeks. The beginning of chapter 5 today is where we'll be. First 12 verses. Goodness gracious. Sometimes it just hits you more than others. About how we really only got one hope. (laughs) Goodness gracious. Mm. Sorry, trying to get together here. (laughs) Thank you, Josh and worship team, for leading us this morning. Appreciate that. What a God. Mm. So, we are, uh, like I said, getting in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. as we get into that, the first part, you know, the the Sermon on the Mount is has transformed the world. There's no other way to say that. The truth that Jesus has has laid upon us and upon his followers changed the world in his day and has continued for nearly two thousand years since then. And um, you know, so I was thinking about. You know, different speeches that, that have changed the world. <clears throat> you know, the spoken word, the written word has power, and it's, it's amazing how um, just audible speeches and, and, and books that have been written and things like that have, have changed people's lives, have, have changed directions of nations, have, have just impacted the world, and I was thinking about all different kinds there of ones. Of course, you know, Martin Luther King had several, but uh, I Have a Dream is probably his most famous one. Um, you know, JFK's inauguration speech, you know, set the tone of a nation for a decade. Um, you know, Nelson Mandela's speech kind of united, uh, start, began the uniting of South Africa, and, and we could go on and on. There's there's numerous more than that. You know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, you know, things like that, but uh, you know, one that was pretty impactful in World War II came from Winston Churchill, and you it's become more popular now because they'd made a movie about it not too long ago, and they kind of dramatized it. His, his speech was a little more subdued than the movie made it, but that's what makes for a good movie, right? A little more dramatic in the movie. But, you know, England and France uh, were on the ropes at the time that Churchill gave this, this speech. They had, they had been whipped pretty good in numerous battles, and uh, it was, had become known to them that, that, that Hitler had a, a plan for invasion invading the island uh, of Great Britain, the United Kingdom, and things did not look very good. And it's, it's, it's strange because Winston Churchill really, he was a man for the moment, and that was about it. You know, he he messed up badly in World War I, uh, got kicked out uh, of, of his military, you know, office. He he couldn't get elected, and then he finally gets elected in, during World War II. He was a man for World War II. That's really what God made him for. He, he he lost election after World War II was over, but man, was he good during World War II? Did he get it right? And this is—it was about a 12-minute speech that was heard all over, all over the the known world at the time, through the radio. Uh, but this is just a small snippet of it, and it's it's you know it's become probably the more famous part of it. But it's a speech that changed the world, no doubt. We shall fight. In France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. Kind of rallied, rallied the world. Uh, you, could, you can overstate the importance of a speech, but I would say that it definitely had that effect. Uh, Obviously, what Jesus does is more than a speech, um, but it is a spoken word, probably a sermon that Jesus spoke over and over and over and over again in some form or in some fashion. Um, but man, it's something that we still grapple with to this day. Um, it's something that we still strive to be, to live up to. And so we're going to spend, like I said, the next several weeks, basically uh, up until almost up until Easter from, from now till then, looking at these three chapters and the depth uh, that is there we won't bog way down although we could, it will be more of a broad view of the sermon, um, otherwise we could spend years just in these three chapters and some of you would love that and some of you would start to throw tomatoes at that point so we won't do that but it begins like this in chapter 5 it says when he, being Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, "This is the beginning of the sermon, right? So some things about Matthew, and I won't rehash this every week. Um, so if you, if you know, if somebody's not here today and they miss, they'll have to go back to this because I'm not going to say this over and over and over again. But you know, Matthew's gospel—it's <clears throat> our first gospel in the scriptures. It's a decidedly Jewish-oriented." gospel. Matthew's purpose is Jesus as king. That's what he is. That's his overarching description of Jesus. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He is the king of kings. He is the king. And therefore, as a king, he has a kingdom. And so many of the, much of the way Matthew structured his gospel is describing Jesus as his king and how we should live as citizens or as servants in his kingdom, and this is the beginning of his first sermon that he gives us of Jesus, first of five that he gives us, kind of describing that all throughout the gospels, and really you could say that the way Matthew Matthew doesn't structure his gospel chronologically, he structures it in a way that makes a point, and, and the way that he structures it is, is kind of the Sermon on the Mount sets the stage and then the rest of the, of the events that he describes in Jesus' life and the things that take place are all a response and or description and details of, of this sermon. I don't think I'm overstating or digging there to see something that's not there. I think that's, a, that's an accurate way to look at it. But Matthew, he gives a, he gives a, a, a Jewish viewpoint uh, of Jesus. It's, it's more than likely that Matthew was writing this letter to a predominantly Jewish converted church. There are things that he says, there are words that he uses, there are phrases that he uses that, that a Jewish audience would pick up on. He is assuming that the audience understands some of the things he is saying. He uses some, some Hebrew words and some Hebrew terms throughout his gospel. It's very obvious that he is doing that, but at the same time, it's not necessarily a, a pro Jewish gospel. It's just an accurate Jewish gospel. And so it is presents Israel, especially Israel's leaders at the time, um, as the lack thereof of fulfilling what Israel is supposed to be. And so they have not done that, but here comes Jesus. And so as he as he talks, so he quotes the Old Testament often in his gospel, as he obviously would because as a Jewish Christian you would want to know what about all this how does that apply to now and Matthew does a good job of explaining that but sometimes it, for me personally and maybe you have done this i've gotten the wrong, I, i've looked at it from the wrong angle almost sometimes like like how does how does Jesus how does Jesus view the law almost or or or, or how does the law relate to Jesus but really it's it's the other way around. It's like, it's not like, what do we do with the law now that we have Jesus? It's like, what did Jesus do with the law? Therefore, that's what matters. That's what Matthew is trying to get us to understand, that Jesus fulfilled the law and as its author, and therefore its only correct interpreter, what he says the law means is what the law means. And, he's, and he lays that out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said. We'll get to it in a uh, next week you 've heard it said but i 'm telling you this right you have heard man 's interpretation of this law, but here 's what it actually means as far as god is concerned it 's a it 's a deep a deep gospel, and this section of the gospel is a, is a deep section of his deep gospel uh, but that 's kind of the understanding of of, of the gospel of matthew it 's a it was the most in the second century, in the early church, it was the most quoted gospel of all the second century writings of the church fathers. It laid a foundation. It was, as A.B. As, uh, Bound says, it's, it's, it's really a discipleship training manual. Like the whole gospel is Jesus is king, and here's how you should be as a disciple. Here's what it is like to be his disciple. It's constantly, the crowds are there, but he's drawing to his 12. Weirdly enough, Many modern sociologists say that you're really only capable of maintaining about 12 really close relationships at any one time in your life. That's like the limit of human capacity. So Jesus is maximizing his human capacity and pouring everything he has into the 12 because as God man, as the man part of the God man, he is limited in where he can go and what he can do as a human because he sets his godness aside in that aspect and uses these 12 to go on and reach you and me. (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, And it starts, his teachings start really right here in this gospel. As he backs up away from the crowd a little bit, draws his followers in. Does it mean that only the 12 or the closest disciples? We're not really sure. You read five, six, seven commentaries, you'll get five, six, seven different answers on that. But he's not speaking just to the crowd, although the crowd does hear what he's saying because they respond towards the end. And so that's kind of the background and the setting of Matthew. And we get into this sermon, this message. And the first word Jesus says is beatus, is how you would say it in the Latin. Now, Jesus wouldn't have been speaking Latin, but the Vulgate is where we get that word, the Latin translation of the Bible Beatus, it's translated sometimes, most often times in in our scriptures in the English as blessed, but it's not blessed as in putting on a blessing on someone. It's it's more akin to our English word happy, really and truly. Um, there's a there's a connotation of when describing someone that is this word beatus, which is where we get the word beatitudes, by the way, just. Throwing that out there, it's a person to be congratulated. Like, like your your life is going the, the the things are so well that you should be congratulated. It's almost enviable, right? Happy is blessed is. It's a it's an inner satisfaction. It's implying an inner satisfaction and a sufficiency that is not dependent upon circumstances. Which is why it's dangerous to say happy now in the way we think of happy in our modern English. But it's it's irregardless of circumstance. It's that, it's really the word that it makes most sense to me is joy. It's really more of what I consider to be joy. 26 times in the Psalms, this word is used. Eight times in the Proverbs. Numerous times in the New Testament, it is used. And here, the first word of the sermon heard around the world and that changed the world, the first word that Jesus puts out there that Jesus says is happy is or blessed is or satisfied is it's interesting to me that the first word from Jesus from the most ser- most famous sermon ever given is here's how to be happy it's kind of interesting to me that that's the case I mean we say that a lot and and man we're misguided in the way we say it sometimes but I mean we say things like about our kid we just want them to be happy I just want my kid to be my my child to be happy. I just want I just want to make my spouse happy. I just want to make my friends happy. I just want people to be happy. It's really that that's really what we're searching for. It's that thing inside of us we want that, and we can't even it's hard to even put it into language. But we all have that inner unsatisfaction that we want to be satisfied. And the first thing Jesus says is, "Here's the answer to that." That thing inside of you that just consistently feels unsatisfied. Here's the answer. Well, I'm the answer is what he, would, he is saying. But here's the answer. So he gives us the answers. It, and this is not a new thing. I mean, look at how the Psalms start. Same word. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on on it day and night he is like a tree pl- planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. And its leaves does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. This idea has been there all along. Jesus says here is how you do that. So let's get into it. 3 through 12. Jesus says, Be a juice. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before them. God, I come before you today, Lord, as we we go through these beatitudes, Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me, that you would speak to me, Lord, that you would use me however you see fit. I would decrease, that you would increase, Lord, that you would be magnified and proclaimed, that your word would be clear, and that your spirit would work and move in me and in every individual in here, and that here's this word proclaimed this morning, God. We pray that those that are saved would be revived and inspired to live a life worthy of the gospel, God, and we pray that those that have not experienced the gospel, that today they would lay down and submit their life to the truth of the gospel, to you as their Lord and Savior and King of Kings. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's get into uh, these as we move forward. So first he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now when he says this, he doesn't mean the poor monetarily. He means the poor inwardly. Blessed are those that know they need God, is what Jesus is saying here, blessed are those that know they need God. In other words, Jesus, just a chapter before is, has said that, uh, repent and be forgiven of your sins because the kingdom of heaven is here. The, the beginning of a relationship with God is repentance. And the beginning of repentance is understanding that you need to repent. It's understanding your condition. The beginning of repentance is the recognition of condition. The recognition of the need for a Savior. The poor in spirit acknowledge their need for a Savior. That's what Jesus is saying here. You have to first, in order to come to me, you have to know that you need me. You have to continually and always consistently remember that you need me, that I am your only hope. I am your Savior, the forgiver of your sins. I'm Not good, in other words. That's the recognition. I understand, as a human being, that I am not good. We have to remember that, we have to know that, and we have to live with that kind of heart, that I'm not good. And any time I look into the mirror and think that I'm starting to arrive, I need to slap myself in the face, talking to myself here, not you, I need to slap myself in the face and say, no, no, I need God, no matter how many Bible studies I do, no matter how much Bible reading I do, no matter how many times I come to church, no matter what all the outward pious acts that I do, I am not good. I'm forgiven by the one that is good. Romans says it this way. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. You and I have a hope only because God chose in his grace to draw you to him and allow you to recognize the need for that hope, that's the beginning. And these beatitudes, they kind of, some people say they don't build, I think they kind of build. I think they kind of build on each other. Uh, You know, scholars, they can get bogged down in, in the minutia of what is and is not in scripture, but I think they kind of build. And the beginning of this building is a recognition of your condition, that you need a savior, you know that you are poor in spirit. In order to inherit the kingdom, that's the first step, the beginning. Verse 4, it talks about self in verse 3. Now we're turning towards sin. Proper view of self, now proper view of sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this isn't necessarily talking about mourning the way we think of mourning. Okay, This is talking specifically about mourning over your sin condition. We should mourn and despise our own sin. We should mourn and despise our own sin. Mourning in this sense and in all senses really is, pre- is presenting the need to the one and only who is able to help. I should mourn and despise my, my sin in a way that I am offering it to God because I know he is the only one that can help. Now in that sense, mourning the way we think of mourning, mourning because of death is also that because the reason that death exists is because of sin and when we mourn a death what we're saying is god i can't wait for the day when you take this away i can't wait for the day when you take this away because it's just too much It moves on there to verse 5. It says, "Blessed are the humble." There I did it just dusty. For they will inherit the earth. Yours may say meek. It may say gentle. It's all the same thing. Blessed are the humble, blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle. What is this? This 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 one's probably been misconstrued as much as any. This ridiculous idea that to be a christian is to be is to be weak and frail and a pushover and spineless nothing could be further from the truth to be meek is not to be weak to be humble to be gentle to be meek is to know that you have power but through maturity and grace you use that power for construction not destruction the world uses power to, to hold down, to crush, to hurt, to destruct. But, but God wants us to use power and authority and any type of thing that falls into that category for constructive means. That's what gentle is. It's not that I can't hurt you. It's that I don't want to hurt you, that I'm going to do what I can to help you, not because I don't have any other option, but because it's the best option it's power under control, it's power matured, it's, it's proper recognition of, of the position that you're in, proper recognition. Being humble is not, oh poor pitiful me, oh I'm so terrible, oh I'll never be good, that's false humility and it's infuriating when we do that and I, and we and we all fall prey to that from time to time but it's not what humility is humility is here's what God has made me to do and I'm going to do it and I'm not going to apologize for it that's what humility is and <clears throat> this is in context of, of women's beauty where Peter is talking about this here but the, but the idea pervades all things he says instead it should consist talking about it should be that outward appearance of women's beauty. It should consist of what is inside the heart with the imperishable quality of gentle and quiet spirit, which is very valuable in God's eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a highlighter and an underliner of, of things in scripture, I would underline or 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 highlight or circle or stick something in there or do anything when I saw that God said something is valuable. God says that the inner spirit, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit is valuable. Now, again, in context, this is talking about it's better for a, for a woman to have that spirit than to look beautiful on the outside, to adorn herself with a bunch of stuff and make herself look like she is something special. God's more worried about the inside. But that truth holds out to all things because that's what truth does. Truth holds up to all things. Says it a different way in Psalms 37 7. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way. I'm gonna read that again. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way. How come they do this and get away with it and get and don't be like that. Do not be agitated, agitated by the one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm, Daniel, for evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the earth a little while, and the wicked person will be no more. Catch that? They're not prospering in the end, and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there, but the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. Make no mistake meekness is not weakness being humble is not being weak it's not weakness it's incomprehensible strength to have the power to do harm and to not it's incomprehensible strength to have the power to stop someone from doing harm to you criticizing slapping us on the cheek and to hold your tongue to withhold Agitation that's incomprehensible strength. Another again, it's correct recognition of position. I'm a servant in the kingdom, I'm not the king. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That sounds awesome right now because I'm hungry. Sorry, that's (laughs) yeah, wrap it up, preacher. I'm hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's it's an appetite, right? It's a desire, but catch it. It's a desire for seeking personal righteousness. It's a desire for seeking inner personal righteousness. Not a judgmental, I've got it all figured out, wish you could be a super Christian like me, inner attitude. It's a relationship of obedience. It's a desire, an appetite to have a relationship of obedience. Obedience and and a trust with God. It's a desire for that. It's an appetite for that. If you don't have that, ask God for it. We need that appetite, Christian. It wanes. Like all appetites, it wanes. It's strong sometimes and it's weak sometimes. And when it's weak, we are in a dangerous position of committing acts, saying words, And hurting each other in ways that we wouldn't otherwise do that. Blessed, right? Blessed. Happy. Happy for those who do this because, because one, the the more I'm in a right relationship with God, the more I'm in a right relationship with you. Because that's what a right relationship with God does. It strengthens human relationships. Happy for that because that's great, but that's also temporal. Temporal. Happy for and hunger, for, hunger and thirst for righteousness, that makes you happy because you know that one day righteousness is actually going to be fulfilled completely. Some of these things are, are in the now. Some of these things are in the future, as Jesus says, being blessed. How can you be happy regardless of circumstance? Because you know that all circumstances are temporary. But one day, fulfilled righteousness is complete. And the sin that we despise in ourselves will be no more. And the sin that wrecks the world will be no more. And the sin that causes death will be no more. And the sin that hurts you and your loved ones and says things that it shouldn't say and does things that it shouldn't do and doesn't forgive and forgets to be merciful and all the things that make the world practically intolerable at times will be no more. That's how you can be happy as you thirst and hunger for righteousness because it is a reminder daily that you're not there but one day God's going to make us all there completely. What a day that will be and this is you know this is where the world goes they throw out that phrase sometimes people that follow God say this too why doesn't the God why doesn't God do something about evil? Why doesn't he do something about when someone does something wrong? Right? And when we're doing that, we're doing exactly what I'm doing right now. Unconsciously, we're doing that, right? You know what the answer to that question is? Why don't you do something about your evil? Answer a question with a question. Why hasn't God done something about evil? Why don't you do something about your evil? Why don't you do something about the wrong that you do? Why are you worried about God fixing everything when you're not even willing to fix yourself? Don't excuse your evil because God doesn't do anything about evil. God's asked you to do something about your evil. Don't excuse your evil. Don't excuse your sin. And I'm talking to the world, but I'm also talking to us because we can get that same attitude. In other words, we should be to do like David says in Psalm 31. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me in my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Pray that prayer and see if God won't change your heart. Pray that prayer and see if God won't break your heart. For the nastiness that resides inside of your heart. Stop and think about it. Look deep into the mirror. And remember that you still need his righteousness. Moving on. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It starts with self the attitude towards self, and then moves on to the attitude towards sin, and then now we get into the attitudes towards God, towards our Lord Jesus. We have received mercy from God. We are to be generous extenders of that mercy. And in that, we are reminded of the mercy we have received. And in that, we will find satisfaction, the happiness that is to be envied by the world. Kingdom servants, Jesus followers are others oriented we are to be kind and compassionate especially especially towards brothers and sisters in the kingdom especially here's the way paul says it in ephesians but god who is rich in mercy there it is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with the messiah even though we were dead in trespasses you are saved by grace Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God is merciful, therefore his followers should be merciful. The king of kings is merciful, therefore his servants should be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is not talking about, he's already talked about righteousness. He's not doubling up on righteousness. This is pure as in, as in like undiluted, right? Undiluted as in singularly focused, attention set, right? What is sin? The literal word is to miss the mark. What do you, why do you miss the mark most of the time? Because you're not singularly focused on what you're trying to hit. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, when we are solely focused on what we need to be focused on, magically, all the wonderful things God's doing in this world magically appear. We see him. And then in the future, those who are singularly focused on doing what God has called them to do because they've been forgiven through Jesus will literally see God bring that on. Is this new? No. Here's how Moses said it in Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second part, Jesus said, is just as important to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he went on to say, no, 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 let me say it even more plain. Here's what you should do. You should love each other the way I have loved you, and I have loved you all the way. There ain't any further I could go. To show you how much i love you singularly focused on being a kingdom servant our attention sets our direction which determines destination where you set your attention sets your direction which determines your destination we have to be focused in the right way on the right thing all the time blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of god we're almost done peacemakers peace now jesus is talking about internal spiritual peace the people of his day they weren't so worried about that they were a little more worried about uh and expected him to be more on the physical peace right the militarily peace like the political peace like kick rome out of here and then everything will be fine peace that's what they wanted now good news is that peace is coming too Praise the Lord. Bring it on. Most of these, like I said, are in the now and in the future. Bring on that peace, Lord. I can't wait for the millennial reign. Bring it on. And then it goes on for eternity. It's going to be awesome. But he's talking about inner peace, peace with God. See, there can't be peace for nations if the hearts of the citizens of the nation, there can't be peace in the kingdom if the hearts of the servants of the kingdoms aren't at peace. And we can only be at peace If we are at peace with god and we can only be at peace with god if we accept what he has done to change us from enemies to children and that's jesus christ the only answer the only hope he doubles down on this one excuse me he says it a different way in in micah 4 3 one of my favorite verses i love this verse he will settle disputes among peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away they will beat their swords into plows and they will their spears and pruning knives nation will not take up sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. Peace now with God, physical peace to come forever later. No more striving, rest, peace, praise God. Blessed are those who persecuted, who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The honor in the kingdom is given to those that are hurt physically, socially, emotionally, and otherwise because of living out God's righteousness not because of our own stupidity and dumb decisions and then we're persecuted for being idiots that's not what he's talking about he's saying when you do things the right way when you're meek when the world says that you shouldn't be right when you're merciful when the world says mercy how about an elbow drop bro when we do it God's way the kingdom bestows honor on that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs honor is put on them and then he doubles down on this one two different ways he says it you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me catch it because of me be glad and rejoice be glad and rejoice when people persecute you and say all kinds of mean things about you because you're living for Jesus. Be glad and rejoice, Jesus says, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus doubles down on this truth and reminds them, you've known this. How high of esteem do you hold the prophets? He's telling them that are listening. We all do, right, is what Jesus is telling them. All the prophets of the Old Testament that were forsaken and, and, and treated terribly even killed, now we hold them up in high honor and esteem because they did what God asked them to do. 1 Kings says that. You can look in many places where it says this. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man who I can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies good about me, but only disaster. He is Micaiah, son of Imlai. There's a guy I can go see about what God says to do about this, but I don't want to talk to him because what he's going to say is not what I want to hear. What I want to hear is punch the guy in the nose. What he's going to say is be merciful. <laughs> I mean, it's a trivial way to put it, but it kind of fits. <laughs> Let's sum it all up and we'll get out of here. Let's sum it all up. If Jesus is the king, then we are his servants in his kingdom. You know, we talked the other day about how we always long for the king, right? That thing's in us. We long for the leader that can set things right. We have him. We have him. And when you have a leader that sets things right, then we ought to be living the way that leader has called us to live. Let's sum the whole thing up, all the Beatitudes in a paragraph. Happy, satisfied, and fortunate are those who realize they are broke and helpless before God because of their sin are grateful for his mercy and forgiveness, and are solely focused on serving the king by their merciful and peacemaking actions towards other servants. That's what Jesus says. You want to be satisfied in this world? Live the way I'm calling you to live. Live completely and totally, wholly separate and contrary to what the world tells you is the way to live. Or you could say it even simpler. Happy, satisfied, and fortunate are those who have the correct heart towards their sin, their Lord Jesus, and towards the world. Happy because nothing in this world shakes them. Nothing in this world shakes them. Not to the point of crumbling. Maybe to the point of tears. Maybe to the point of a little pain. But not to the point of crumbling under the storm. Ain't going to happen. God's word says it. Happy and satisfied and fortunate are those who have the correct heart towards their sin, their Lord Jesus, and toward the world. Nothing shakes them. Which leaves us with one question. Are you satisfied this morning? Have you experienced the satisfying relationship with God? It starts with a recognition that you need to repent of your sins. And an admission that to f- receive forgiveness for that sins, you must place your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, the forgiver of your sins, the God-man that shed his blood so that you could be made at peace, made at right, made atoned for with God. If you haven't ever done that, today would be a great day to do it. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your truth and your word. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your For your patience with us as unbelievably hard-headed, self-righteous followers of yours. God, break our hearts for our own sin. Break our hearts for the log in our own eyes. So that we don't even have time to worry about the speck in our brother or sister's eyes. God, remind us of how merciful you are to forgive us of how unrighteous we are, God. And may we be so filled with your Spirit as we we recognize and submit to that truth that we are incapable of not sharing that to others, God. Make us merciful, Lord. Make us merciful the way you want us to be, God. Make us... Live in and create the kingdom that you want to be here, God. And in that, as long as we are in this world, strengthen us to persevere until you do come back and make all things right. Help us to be satisfied, Lord, in you. Blessed, to the end of the age.